If you're using the Pew Bible, looks like it is on at least this edition. Looks like we will be on page 802. So open up to the book of Philippians if you have your Bible. If you don't have a Bible, we have a couple spares over there, and I think there's some on the chairs around you. So the book of Philippians, and today marks our the beginning of our trek through the book of Philippians, which is really exciting. We just wandered through the wilderness with Israel for 40 years, um, and so now we're about to begin a new trek. We're not going through the wilderness. This time we're going through Philippians. The wilderness was marked with grumbling. This book's marked with joy and positivity, so um, it's very different. It's like we've stepped out of a desert into a, into a, a, a rainforest or something. So, yep, we'll be going through Philippians, and I'll pray. Hopefully you've reached the book by now, and then we'll, we'll get started. Our Father in heaven, we thank you for your son, Jesus. We have no one to boast in or hope in beside him. We pray, Father, that you would meet us through your word. We need the word of God. We believe you have spoken. And we believe that your words are more helpful and needed than any words that anyone has ever spoken or will speak in the world. So give these words to us now. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. I like to think of the book of Philippians, and I've heard it called this before, as like a coffee mug book. Um, if you've been a Christian for a while, you've probably noticed that we put verses on all kinds of strange things. We put verses on coffee mugs and other stuff. And Philippians is probably the go-to book for coffee mug verses. It's just full of inspirational, motivational quotes. So maybe you've heard some of these. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. That's a pretty famous verse. Now, if you haven't been reading Philippians, you might not hear about it, but that's a pretty known verse. Or you can go down farther in uh, chapter 1. For to me, to live is Christ, and to die is gain. That's a pretty cool-sounding verse. Chapter 2, you get this one. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, regard others as more important than yourselves great verse. And the book is filled with these type of verses. But whatever were gains to me, I now consider loss for the sake of Christ. What is more, I consider everything a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus, my Lord, for whose sake I've lost all things. I consider them garbage that I may gain Christ and be found in him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which is through faith in Christ. These are incredible verses. Or there's the, the ultimate um, football player verse. You see the football players, and they always have Philippians 4.13 on their socks or on their shoes or on their, I don't even know what you call the black stuff that goes under your eyes. Whatever that's called, they put it there. I can do all things through him who strengthens me. That's a great verse. So you have all these verses, and there's even a couple others that are in my mind that we skipped over. And my goal today is for you to not see the book of Philippians as a, a scattering of just nice inspirational quotes. 
My goal for you today is to see how the book of Philippians is a, a book. It's actually designed to communicate a message and that this message is absolutely essential for your life. That's my goal. So I'm all fine with verses on coffee mugs, but how much better it is to know what they're actually talking about, you know? So to get us going, I want you to imagine that you are a small child, or maybe you're driving the car and there's small children in the back, and you are on a long road trip. For me, this would have been going to Orlando, Florida, out of Baton Rouge, which was like roughly 12 hours. And um, wherever you're going, you're about halfway there, and you've got a brother or a sister or a cousin or somebody in the back seat with you, and you're headed to this destination, and wherever you're going, it's going to be awesome once you get there. So I hope you've got a place in your mind, okay? You're going somewhere, and it is half past forever to get there in your seven-year-old mind. Because, you know, time goes so slowly when you're seven. And you are about, I don't know, 50% the way to your destination. And what do you and your buddy who's sitting next to you start doing? You probably start fighting with each other. Lydia said grumbling. It's like bonus points, right? That's the word from Philippians chapter 2, grumbling. Um, you start fighting with each other. Maybe you want the window down, and your sister doesn't want the window down. All right? And so you're just fighting back and forth, and the window's going up and down, and the tempers are going higher and higher. And everyone's just having a terrible, miserable time. I'm sure no one's ever experienced this, right? This has never happened to anyone before. Um, that is the book of Philippians in a nutshell. In the book of Philippians, it speaks to us as though we are going somewhere. And the place that we are going is incredible. It is glorious beyond comprehension and yet on our way there sometimes we fight each other and we shouldn't and there's two reasons why we fight each other in the book of philippians and it's the same two reasons why you and your buddy were fighting in the back seat when you were seven years old and so hopefully by the end of it you'll know what these two reasons are I want you to see, to begin with, where are we going? So Philippians chapter 1, verse 6. You've probably heard this verse. If you haven't, you're about to. So we'll all be on equal footing after this. I just want you to see we're on a journey. And then after I show you where we're going, then um, I will quickly go over the book. We'll go over the whole book pretty quickly. And then I'll talk about these two things you really need to know for your life. Okay? So that's what we're doing. And chapter 1, verse 6. Being confident of this, that he who began a good work in you will carry it on to completion until the day of Christ Jesus. When Paul uses these words, he who began a good work will bring it to completion. He's actually alluding back to Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2. When God was making things in the beginning, 
What did he call? What did he say after he finished every day, pretty much? It is, it's good. It's good. And when did he do this? He did it in the, in the beginning. So he who is beginning a good work in you will bring it to completion. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 1, thus the heavens and the earth were completed. There it is. So in the beginning, God did a good work and he brought it to completion. What was this good work? Creation. The world. He made it and everything in it. And it's good. It still is today. Even though it's broken, this world is good. It is amazing. You've been out recently and just looked at the leaves, looked at the grass, looked at the animals. I saw a fisher cat the other day. It ran out of the woods stood on a rock, looked for something to attack, couldn't find anything, and sprinted back into the woods. That is cool. So God has made this good work. And now Paul says in Philippians, he's doing the same thing again. He's begun a good work in you, and he will bring it to completion, because he's not a God who does halfway things. What he starts, he finishes. What's the work that he did originally? Creation. So what's this new good work that he's begun to do? A new creation. He will make this world new. He will. And he is changing us little by little every day. And we are the beginning of this new creation. He's making us new in Christ Jesus, making us like Jesus. And one day it's not just us who will be made like Jesus, it's Everything will be made right. And this is where we're going. We're on the way to this glorious unfolding. It's going to be beautiful, all right? And the problem is, as we are approaching God's new creation, we are approaching his world of love and grace, sometimes we fight with each other as a church. And that's the problem we have in Philippians. So now that we know where we're going, I just want to quickly go through the book with you, okay? So we'll try to do this in about 10 or 15 minutes, which isn't long at all. And in the weeks to come, we will fill this out. So in weeks to come, we'll look at this paragraph and this paragraph and this paragraph. So I might finish going through Philippians, and you might be like, I have so many questions about the book. So that's fine. Just come back next week. And then the week after that, and the week after that, right? Okay. So... Chapter 1, Philippians. Paul's writing to the Philippians, and in verses 3 through 8, he says, I pray for you often. I give thanks for you. And then in verses 9 through 11, he says, Not only do I give thanks to you, but I'm praying for you now. I'm always thanking God for you, and I'm always praying for you. And in verse 9, he specifically says, I pray that your love may grow more and more. Which kind of makes you wonder if maybe their love hadn't grown enough. Maybe there's, they're lacking love in something. You need more and more love. And then Paul, who's writing from prison, says in, in verses 12 through 26, he says, this is how I'm doing. Have you ever had a friend and you heard your friend was, something bad happened to your friend, but you didn't really know what it was? So 
the birches are leaving, so something's probably happened. So how about we just pray real quick for Brenda and the birches as they're on their way out, and then we'll pick right back up, okay? Our Father in heaven, we thank you that you are with the birches, and we pray, Lord God, that whatever it is that has come to pass, they would entrust you with it. You are a good father, and you are making this world the way it, should, it, will, it will be. And we believe that Brenda will be there one day with us, and Brenda will be made new, and that will be a good day. Thank you that your word says you are near to those who are brokenhearted. Be near to the Birch family now. Amen. If you ever had a friend who you just all you heard was something bad happened to your friend, you're like, I want to, how are you? How are you doing? What happened? Well, the Philippians have heard that Paul got thrown in prison. He's like under house arrest. So in verses 12 through 26, he says, I want to tell you how I'm doing. Answer? It's a strange answer. First, he says, you want to know how I'm doing? I'm doing great because now that I'm in prison, I have new people to tell Jesus to and the gospel spreading to all of them. This is wonderful. I rejoice because the gospel has spread to them and I rejoice that even if I die in prison, I get to be with Jesus. Things are great in prison. That's Paul's answer. Isn't that something? So that's verses 12 through 26. And then Paul says, enough about me. How are you? Right? As you're supposed to do. That's what you teach your children to do, right? How are you, little Timmy? Oh, I'm good. How are you, Mr. So-and-so? Right? So now Paul says in verses 26, I'm sorry, verses 27 all the way through the end of chapter 2. 127 all the way through the end of chapter 2, Paul says, you know how I'm doing. I want to tell you how you need to be doing. This is what you need to be doing, okay? Whether I am released from prison and I get to visit you, or whether I die in prison and I can never visit you, this is what you need to be doing. And the key verse here is in chapter 2, verse 5. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus. What does it mean to have the same mindset as Christ Jesus? He tells you in verse 3. Do nothing out of selfish ambition or vain conceit. Rather, in humility, value others above yourselves. Verse 4, not looking to your own interests, but each of you to the interest of the others. How am I doing? I'm doing great. Prison's fine. Everyone's getting to hear about Jesus. It's wonderful. How are you doing? Well, I don't know, because I'm not with you, but this is what you need to be doing. You need to have the mind of Jesus, which means you need to be looking. You need to be thinking. That's better. You need to be thinking about how to put other people's needs above your own. That's what you need to be doing. We don't know why he's saying this yet, but there is a reason. So that's chapter 127 all the way to the end of chapter 2. So chapters 1 and 2 are basically Paul saying, this is how I'm doing, and this is how you should be doing. 
That's chapter one and two. Not too bad, right? That's half the book right there. It's a short little letter. Chapter three. Chapters three and chapter four are kind of funny. Um, have you ever been in a church service? And hopefully I'm not one of these guys. The pastor's just super long-winded. I had a youth minister like this, and I loved this youth minister. He did so much good to me by God's grace, so much good for me. But I, t I kid you not, it's like every sermon he gave, there were seven bottom lines. He'd say, now this is the bottom line. And then two minutes later, he would say, now listen, here's the bottom line. And then if you just wait three minutes later, he'd say, with everything I've said, let me give you the bottom line. I was like, how many bottom lines are in your, in, your, in your sheet, you know? Like, you got a lot of lines, and they're all at the bottom. Paul, this is what Paul does right now, okay? So look at chapter 3, verse 1. My translations cleaned it up a little bit. It says, further, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. But your translation might not say further. It might say finally. Does anyone have the word finally there? Yeah, most people have the word finally. The reason mine didn't translate it as finally is because look at chapter 4, verse 8. <laughs> look at chapter 4, verse 8. Paul says it again. Same exact words in Greek. Finally. So this is like the pastor who gets towards the end of the sermon. He's like, in conclusion... And then 10 minutes later, he goes, in conclusion, you're like, wait, wait, what's going on here? That's what Paul's doing. And so he's marking off two sections, actually. So chapter 1 and chapter 2 is, this is how I'm doing. I'm rejoicing that the gospel is spreading, and you need to have a humble mindset seeking to serve one another. Chapter 3, verse 1 says, finally, rejoice in the Lord. That's the next section. And then chapter 4, verse 8 says, Finally, whatever is true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So in other words, finally, you need to rejoice in the Lord. And finally, you need to think straight. You need to think on lovely things. You need to think on pure things. You need to think on beautiful things. So you have two parts in the beginning and two parts at the end. How I'm doing and how you should be doing. And rejoice in the Lord and think better. Rejoice and think. In other words, feel this way and think this way. This is how the book's working, okay? And then... In chapter 4, verses 10 through 23, he says, Thank you for giving me money. I was in prison. I was starving to death, basically. And it's not like meals were provided back then. It's not like he had no meals to go to. under to get. There's no cafeteria with his house arrest. So he says, Thank you for providing me money. This is great. Chapter 4, verse 10 I rejoiced greatly in the Lord that at last you renewed your thinking of me, literally. You renewed your thinking. I rejoiced 
that you were thinking of me. You were concerned for me. And that's how the book ends. Him saying, I'm so thankful you've met my needs in Christ Jesus. I know God will meet your needs. Now, why do they need to be doing these two really important things, which I haven't explicitly told you what they are yet? You get the answer in chapter 4, verses 1 and 2 and 3. So here's the problem of the letter, okay? Chapter 4, verses, verses 1 through 3. Therefore, my brothers and sisters, whom I love and long for, my joy and crown, stand firm in the Lord in this way, dear friends. How should they stand firm? I plead with Yodia, and I plead with Sintiki to be of the same mind in the Lord. Literally, to, to think the same thing. I plead with you to think the same thing or think the same way in the Lord. Yes, I ask you, my true companion, help these women since they have contended at my side in the cause of the gospel, along with Clement and the rest of my co-workers whose names are in the book of life. So now you see the picture. They are on their way to this glorious future. God has started a good work, and he will finish this new good work that he has begun. It will be a glorious future. They are on the way. But halfway there, two women, one named Eudia and the other named Sintiki, have started this massive fight in the church. And we have no idea what they're fighting about. The, in fact, the only thing we know about these two women from history is that they're arguers. How would you like that to be how you're known in history? What a way to be remembered. The only thing we know about these two women in history is that they're fighters. And they can't get along. That's it. It's not how I want to be known. Okay. And so Paul is pleading with them to get along. Now, I wonder if you were able to detect the two remedies to their fighting. There's two remedies for this fight. Paul, not Paul, someone far less noble than Paul, I, in the beginning, gave you an illustration. I said there's children in the back seat, and they're going somewhere great, and they're about halfway there, and they start fighting. And I said there's two reasons there's fighting. There's the same two reasons from this book. Do you know what they are? figured it out yet. One of them is they're not thinking right. They're not preferring the other person's needs. If I'm saying, no, you can roll the window down even if it makes me cold, and the other person's saying, no, I don't want to roll the window down if it makes you cold. No matter which way you go, it'll be okay. No matter what you do, everyone wins. Let's say the window stays up. I'm happy that I'm warm. And the other person's happy that they got to serve me. How can fighting exist if both parties want the other person to win? How can fighting happen if both people want the other person to win? It, it can't. It can't. So I want to show you this. I want to show you this 
think the right way. It goes all throughout the book of Philippians. We could look at this in a lot of different places. Chapter 2, verse 5. In your relationships with one another, think the same way as Christ Jesus. That's what it literally says. Chapter 3, verse 15. All of us then who are mature should take such a view of things. Literally, all of us who are mature should think the same way about things. And if on some point you think differently, God will make that clear to you. Chapter 4, verse 2. I plead with Iodia and I plead with Sintiki to think the same way in the Lord. I counted up the number of verses in Philippians that talk about thinking the right way. Not the number of verses. I counted up the number of verbs. How many times does Paul tell them to think the right way? I counted 16. And it could easily be more than that. Okay, 16 times. He's saying, I'm thinking this way. You need to think this way. Jesus is thinking this way. You need to think this way. And what is the way we are to think fundamentally? It is to think like Jesus. How did Jesus think? He preferred others' needs over his own. Where does Paul say that? Philippians chapter 2, verses 5 through 11. I hope I get to preach these verses, but I probably won't. But that's okay, because I need to prefer Joel's desires over my own. Maybe Carl will get these. I don't know. Carl's saying, (laughs) Carl says I can keep them. (laughs) Philippians chapter 2, look at verses 5 through 11. You want to hear how Jesus thinks. You want to hear how we should think? You want to hear the type of thinking that makes division impossible? This is it. In your relationships with one another, have the same mindset as Christ Jesus, who, being in the very nature God, did not consider, that's a thinking word, equality with God, something to be used to his own advantage. Even though he's God, he did not go, he did not, even though he's God, he did not act as though he were equal to God. Verse 7, rather, he made himself nothing by taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness, The one who is in nature, God, came down to earth as a servant. That's incredible. And being found in appearance as a man. So he's a man. He humbled himself lower than a man. How do you go lower than a man? By becoming obedient to death, even death on a cross. We believe that God stepped out of heaven to become a man 
and then lower than a man, a criminal, given the worst form of the death penalty known in history. If any president of the United States ever came in here and washed your feet, that would be in the history books forever. That would never be forgotten. And we have God leaving heaven, dying on a cross to cover your sins as a convicted criminal worthy of the death penalty. I think that qualifies as preferring someone's needs over their own. Therefore, God highly exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue acknowledge that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. So as we're meditating on this idea that preferring one another, thinking how can I serve you, is what kills divisions and fights. As we're meditating on that, a um, couple things I want to mention. First, how do you start to think about other people's needs? How do you start to do that? Because it does not come naturally, does it? We are born from the womb thinking about us only. I mean, from the womb, I was number one. And on a lot of days, I'm still number one. I need God to change how I think, right? How do you change? Well, here's what you do. You do what Paul did right here in the book of Philippians. You rehearse what Jesus did. You go over what Jesus did for you over and over and over and over again until the story of Jesus' love and sacrifice and humility and him preferring your needs becomes the way you think. You can't do something if you've never seen it done before, right? It's very hard. So where do you look to see how is this done? You look to Jesus. You read the Gospels. You read the prophecies in the Old Testament that talk about Jesus' death for us. This becomes the track in your mind that's on repeat. You play it over and over again. Your mind will not change just accidentally. It won't. What's one area in which we fail to do this? We fail to put others' needs above our own. Um, here's one that I don't think gets talked on much, but I think it is very critical. Um, it applies to everyone who makes a schedule. Um, in our culture today, there's actually this term that's been created for this, which I find funny. And this is a problem, and it's bled into the church. It's called FOMO. Fear of missing out. That's what people call it. What it basically means is, hey, I need help next Tuesday. Can you help me? Well, I don't know if I can help you. I'll get back to you. What this, the reason this happens is because you don't want to commit to helping them next Tuesday. Because maybe, just maybe, something more appealing to you will come up before next Tuesday. And it'll happen to be on Tuesday. And then you miss out on the fun. And so we don't commit to serving one another or the church. 
That is scheduling selfishness. That's what that is. That is saying, my need for fun is more important than your need for help. And so I comes before you. you I'm not going to commit to that help. And this is a problem big time in the world. And it's a problem in the church. So I bring it up just to tell you, church, just realize what that is. This, this, this feeling of I can't commit to helping. Why, why can't you? Why do you feel like you can't commit to helping? I think that feeling that causes you, that prevents you from committing, I think that feeling is called selfishness. Now, sometimes it might not be. Sometimes you really just, I might have something going that day. I need a couple of days to clarify. I get it. I get it. There's, I, I understand. Sometimes I'll say that to you too. But our schedules should be used in humble manner to say, look, you need help? You got it. You got it. Okay? Yeah, I just heard that expression the other day, FOMO. I was like, what? And then I read it again on the internet. I was like, I didn't know this existed. All right. Second thing. Second way that will diffuse fights. Rejoicing. The first one was think a certain way. Think humbly. And the second one is rejoice. Um, do happy people get in fights? Not really. They really tend to not get in fights. The word rejoice permeates the book of Philippians. It is everywhere. And the word rejoice simply means to be glad. It's like to be visibly glad, to be happy. That's what rejoice means. Um, in Greek, it's similar to in English. We have the word joy. That's a noun. And then we have the verb rejoice it's like the action of joy same thing in greek the word for joy is in the verb rejoice so what is rejoice acting on joy it's being happy that's what rejoicing is and it doesn't always mean super super positive in second corinthians paul can say i am sorrowful yet rejoicing so he's sad and yet in the midst of the sadness, there is rejoicing. So it's not just pure, happy smiles. It is no matter what's going on, I can find joy. I can. And that's something the world desperately wants. I look at the world and I, for the most part, see a lot of miserable people. That's what I see. And they are looking for joy. And they assume that the only way to have joy is to have good circumstances. And we believe that we can have joy in any circumstances. Any circumstance. Completely different. The world says, I need to change what's outside of me. We say, we need to be changed from the inside. That's the key to joy. Where does this rejoicing come from? How can you have joy when you're in prison? On the verge of starving to death. <laughs> How? How can you possibly have joy in that situation? Here's what you do. You remember where you're going. We're halfway there. Some of you are over halfway there. Okay? You're almost there. Do you remember where you're going? Like if I was going to Orlando, Florida to go to all those amusement parks 
And instead of fighting with my brother, I said, you know what, Sean? How fun is it going to be when we get to do that ride? He'd say, oh, yeah, I can't wait to do that ride. And then he'd say, and we're going to get to try that place with all the drinks. You know the place with, like, you can try 80 different sodas? I said, yeah, I remember that place. I'll never forget that one. Oh, that's going to be so fun. And what are we doing? Are we fighting? No way. We're rejoicing. We're on our way to the best place ever. And if you just remember that, you can rejoice in any circumstance. Why can Paul rejoice in prison in chapter 1? Because he says, even if I die, it will be salvation for me. In other words, even if I die with Jesus. I get the best thing ever if I die. So I can rejoice in this. I can rejoice in anything. This is Paul's point. So, You've heard it probably said, Philippians 4.4. Rejoice in the Lord. And again, I say, rejoice. Philippians chapter 3, verse 1. Finally, my brothers and sisters, rejoice in the Lord. For me to say the same thing again is no problem, and it is safety for you. This idea that rejoicing keeps us safe. If we don't rejoice, we start fighting. So here's my thought for you. How can you tell if you're a united church? How can we tell if we are actually a united body, new creation? Do we rejoice over the same things? I thought about my upbringing at, uh, down south. What did churches rejoice over down in Louisiana, where I, where I grew up? Sadly, two things. I hope they're not true for new creation. We rejoiced when football games went our way. And we rejoiced whenever elections went our way. That's when I saw my church most excited, especially the football one. Isn't that silly? That's silly. Look, what is it that makes our church rejoice? I hope it's the things that happen in this book, like. Paul says, the gospel's advancing. People are coming to know Jesus. I'm so excited. I'll be in prison if it means these people get to know Jesus forever. Easy trade. Easy trade. I'm rejoicing. I'm happy. That's how Paul's mind thinks. Remember where we're going, and you will always have reason to rejoice. And Paul even tells us where we're going at the end of chapter 3. Chapter 3, verse 17 Join together in following my example, brothers and sisters, and just as you have us as a model, keep your eyes on those who live as we do. For as I have often told you before, and now tell you again with, the, with tears, many live as enemies of the cross of Christ. Their destiny is destruction, their God is their stomach, and their glory is in their shame. Their mind is set on earthly things. But hear this. But our citizenship is in heaven, and we eagerly await a Savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. Where are we going? We're going into a world where we will be with Jesus and we will have renewed bodies that last forever. That is so exciting. This is so exciting. I was just thinking this past week, how much money do women spend 
upon makeup so that they can look the way they used to look. How much money do men spend on that workout equipment so they can look the way they used to look? People, well, how much money do we spend on surgery so our bodies can work the way they used to work? Like, fingers crossed, right? Billions upon billions upon billions of dollars every year. Everyone's trying to keep their body the way it was all around the world. That's what everyone's trying to do. And everyone's failed so far. Everyone. We've all died, all right? But we can rejoice. We can rejoice because we will have new bodies that never ache, they never hurt ever again. This is amazing. This is absolutely amazing. What the world is chasing after, we've got promised to us. It will be ours. And this is just one of the things that if you remember, man, you should rejoice. Which brings me to the final point I want to make. is, Do you rejoice? I was convicted of this this past week. I was sharing with my wife. What are the things that I stopped to do? So here's a list of some of the things I stopped to do. Some of these stops are very long. I, I go to work. I take time to go to work. I play with my kids. Like I'll take time to play with my kids. I pray. I'll take time to pray. My wife helps me with that. We pray together. I take time to read the Bible. Right? That's what we all should be doing, these things. Right? I take time to be with friends. I take time to watch sports. I do all kinds of things. Do I take time to just stop and remember how great Jesus is and be happy about it? I don't do that much. I don't just stop and say, wow, I'm going to have a new body. Wow, my sins are taken away. Wow, I'm going to be with Jesus forever. And I don't stop and feel joy over And so that's my, that's my encouragement to you. If you're in a position like me, I encourage you a few times this week, just stop and just remember that you're on the road to the greatest place ever. And that future arrival should give you joy along the way. It should. Okay, so let me sum it all up and then we'll end. The book of Philippians. It's basically Paul saying, thank you for sending me money. I appreciate it. How am I doing? I'm doing great. The gospel is advancing, and if I die, I'm going to be with Jesus, and in this I rejoice. How are you doing? Well, I hope that you are humbly serving one another with a thoughtful mindset, a mindset of humility and service, just like Jesus has served us. Moving on from how I'm doing and how I hope you're doing, now I'm just going to tell you what to do. You need to rejoice, and you need to think correctly. You rejoice because of where you're going. It's going to be great, and you think correctly because Jesus has shown us how and, pay, and, and allowed us by his grace to think this way. May God give us grace to carry this out. Our Father in heaven... We are on the way. We are going somewhere. We are approaching a rival. And I want to be there. I grow weary of fighting. But I can't quit. We can't quit. I pray, God, that we would be filled with joy 
we would feel happy in Jesus. And I pray that we would also think humbly. How can I serve my neighbor? How can I serve my brother and sister in Jesus? And that feeling happy and serving one another will make divisions in our body impossible. Keep us united in Christ Jesus. In his name we pray. Amen.